It's high noon in New York and time for Kate Smith, who will be brought to you every Tuesday and Thursday during the summer by the makers of Sure Gel, America's fastest-selling powdered pectin product. Here she is, Kate Smith. Hello, everybody. Today is a day that no living American can ever forget, Invasion Day, forged into our consciousness in letters of fire. It marks the pinnacle of weeks and months and years of anguished preparations consolidating of our mighty forces. This is the hour of the death blow to those, our enemies, who have spread evil, sorrow, and suffering like a black shadow across the face of this earth. This is the day of reckoning, when America and her allies go forward to the terrible task of crushing completely and forever the enemies who for four and one-half years have ravaged one helpless nation after another. This is the day that must mark the beginning of the downfall of Nazi Germany and the downfall of all those who have sanctioned and aided the brief reign of terror, the cruelty, insanity, and arrogance of Hitlerism. Let the blow be swift and sure. Let us be strong and unswerving in purpose, strong in the assurance that we go forward in a cause which is right, in the liberation of the oppressed and the restoration of human decency and dignity from the forces of evil. This is Invasion Day, Liberation Day. Here at home, we sit beside our radios, eagerly hanging on each word of news that flashes across an ocean around the world. We're filled with a conflict of many emotions, fear, excitement, and hope. But these emotions will not help those whom we most desire to help. They will not carry our brave fighting forces forward unless we harness those thoughts and guide them and use their power to forge an invincible weapon against the foe. Today, we cannot afford to stand idly by, scattering our thoughts so haphazardly that they reap only the wind. We must concentrate them on victory and turn our earnest, united thought into devout, unceasing prayer to God. Wherever you are at this moment, whatever you are doing, join your prayers with mine. A prayer for victory. Pray that our crusaders may be strong, that success will crown their every effort. Pray that they may speedily accomplish their mission and bring their adversaries to unconditional surrender. Pray to our Father in heaven to look down with compassion upon this sick and sorrowing world and guide the forces of right against the forces of evil and insanity. If millions of us, every man, woman, and child in America will lift our fervent prayers to God. Those prayers will be answered. You all know the power of faith and prayer. Use that power now. Use it with every fiber of your heart and soul and mind so that your prayers, along with mine, may reach outward and upward to encompass and aid those we love and the cause for which they crusade. Lift up your prayers for victory and for peace to him who said, Ask, and ye shall receive. And now, Ted, what's new? Allied invasion forces are storming ashore along northern France this noon, taking the first long step to Berlin from a bridge of ships stretching across the English Channel. And the most important news of the hour, in the words of Prime Minister Churchill, is that operations are proceeding according to plan. Never before in history has the world seen anything like the invasion armada that stands between England and France and fills the skies above. 11,000 planes, 4,000 ships, and thousands of smaller craft were in action. And when the invasion was only hours old, the good news came through that we have seized beachheads, which threaten the whole Normandy Peninsula, and a rail line that runs right into Paris. The British radio says that we have a firm grip on two beachheads, and that Allied formations are advancing inland possibly as much as 10 miles. Meantime, the German DNB news agency has admitted dolefully that American tanks have been put ashore in at least one sector. D-Day and H-Hour arrived between the hours of 6 and 8.15 a.m. Western European time, which is between midnight and 2.15 Eastern wartime here in the United States. It was at that hour that land forces under command of General Montgomery began moving ashore along the Normandy coast in the Le Havre-Cherbourg area. As a prelude, the Royal Air Force staged a shattering 1,300-plane attack, and naval guns poured their heavy fire against Nazi strong points. 
A short time later, great forces of our airborne troops began dropping out of planes behind the enemy lines. In a speech to the House of Commons, Prime Minister Churchill declared, Obstacles which were constructed in the sea have not proved so difficult as it was apprehended. The fire of the shore batteries has been largely quelled. Mass airborne landings have been successfully effected behind enemy lines, and landings on the beaches are proceeding at various points at the present time. Mr. Churchill, once more resuming the role of a war reporter, told members that he couldn't concentrate on any particular details, and the reason was the reports were coming in much too fast. He said, however, that operations are proceeding according to plan, and then he added, what a plan. One result of that plan was that an hour after the first of the American, British, and Canadian troops hit the beaches, we had complete mastery of the skies over the landing area, and enemy shore batteries had been silenced for the most part. And because of these factors, our boys are now splashing ashore in the face of little resistance, correspondents say. Yes, the reports are really pouring in this noon, so let's run down the line and see what various quarters have to say. Most of the early news of the invasion, you know, came not from Allied spokesmen, but from the frantic Nazis crouching behind their coastal defenses. So first, let's examine Berlin's side of the story, her claims, and even more important, the things that Berlin admits this noon. The Berlin radio announced some time ago that the Allies have succeeded in getting landing barges into two estuaries behind the Atlantic Wall, and that they've gained footholds on several islands in the Channel, including Guernsey and Jersey. These landing barges were reported to have pushed into the estuaries of the Orne and the Vira Rivers in the coastal stretch between Cherbourg and La Havre, and the Nazi broadcasts acknowledged that Allied tanks have ranged several kilometers inland between the towns of Caen and Isigny. But Berlin's most important admission is that the Allies have penetrated ten miles inland. Other German reports include one from the Trans-Ocean News Agency, claiming that a large Allied warship had been set ablaze in the Seine estuary by artillery fire. Another saying that at least four Anglo-American airborne divisions, including glider troops, have attacked the French coast between La Havre and Cherbourg. And a third, stating that further Allied reinforcements are being landed by sea and air along the Seine, and that a naval battle is raging in the channel north of La Havre. And now for the reports coming out of Allied headquarters. The first communique came from our own leaders at 3.32 a.m. Eastern wartime. It was an epic of simplicity, considering the momentous message it carried. The communique said, Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces supported by strong air forces began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. We can readily see that a lot was left unsaid in that communique, particularly the scene of our invasion. It was not learned until some time later that the focal point of our attacks was the Normandy Peninsula, which juts out from France 100 miles below the English south coast, and then hour by hour the picture became clearer. We apparently were concentrating most of our weight against this peninsula from Cherbourg, at its tip, to Le, Bar, Le Havre, rather, at the mouth of the Seine. That's 110 miles northwest of Paris. Next, we received a report of Allied casualties, and that report contained good news for it said that casualties among our airborne troops descending on France have been light. And then we received further details on the operations. For instance, we were told that more than 640 naval guns ranging from 4 inches to 16-inch weapons were supporting the ground troops, and that hundreds of minesweepers manned by 10,000 officers and men were moving up and down the channel. And after examining these news highlights from the headquarters of both sides, you will note that the first mighty blows of the invasion have been directed at one section, the Normandy coast of France. But there are hints at this hour that new additional operations may come momentarily. Other invasion forces from the great arsenal of the British Isles may spill out into other quarters of Europe, notably Holland. Now, the first hint that the Netherlands may be slated next for invasion came from an Allied headquarters spokesman this morning. He broadcast urgent instructions to the people of Holland warning them to flee inland immediately to a distance of 21 miles and to keep off the highways, the railways, and the bridges. The people of occupied France also received last-minute instructions. They were told that the Allied Air Forces have adopted a new manner of attack and that they will be given advanced warnings to leave their towns and cities before the mighty bomber fleets arrive overhead. General Eisenhower himself also had words of instruction and encouragement for the oppressed peoples under Hitler's domination. The Supreme Commander told them, that the hour of your liberation is approaching. He called on organized resistance groups to follow his previously issued instructions. 
but he cautioned the rest of the people to continue their passive resistance until he gave them the signal to rise and strike at the hated Nazis. To his own soldiers, hardened and toughened by months of training, General Eisenhower had these words to say. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessings of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Meanwhile, the Allied Fifth Army in Italy has advanced about five miles beyond the Tiber River and it's driving the Germans in disordered retreat along a 17-mile front from Roman to the sea. On the Russian front, the Germans continued their futile assaults on the Soviet lines around Yash in Romania, attempting to throw the coming Red Offensive off balance. And over on the other side of the world, General MacArthur's forces are still driving ahead on Biak Island off New Guinea toward the Makmer Airdrome. Incidentally, Washington has given us a word picture of the typical American doughboy as he raced ashore in France this morning. And the gist of it is that he is by far the best-equipped fighting man ever to go into battle. The average hard-hitting Yank was, in fact, a walking arsenal. He carried nothing but weapons, ammunition, and a single day's compact food ration. But what weapons they were. For our equipment consisted of torpedoes for cutting the Nazis' elaborate barbed wire entanglements. And there were grenades, the famous Garand rifles, Browning automatics and rocket guns, not to mention bazookas, flamethrowers, and demolition charges. Yes, the hard work of millions of Americans here at home will be reflected now on these mighty weapons of invasion. Donald Nelson, chairman of the War Production Board, says much of the equipment being hurled at the Germans this noon consists of weapons which the public has never seen or even heard of. And as the invasion got underway, an American correspondent rode in a plane watching the assault. And here is what he saw. No man's land is 5,000 feet below. It's somewhere between the gray channel washed beaches on which Allied troops are swarming from their landing barges and the brown fields beyond. The wink of gun flashes and the half-light of dawn in those fields comes from Germans fighting the invasion. And as we wheel off the targets... And we streak back toward the channel. Dawn streaks the eastern sky. Peering down, you can see our troops scrambling ashore under a canopy of shells hurled over their heads by warships in a harbor that dents the shoreline. In the half-light, we can see the flashes from German shore batteries all along the coastline and inside the harbor. By now, as we fly across the white-capped channel, we have a bridge of ships from England to France. They range from mighty battle wagons to tiny, gnat-like PT boats and they include all manner of transports and landing craft. Yes, this is D-Day, H-Hour, indeed. Our sponsors, the makers of Sure Gel, America's fastest-selling powdered pectin product, allowed us today to dispense with our regular commercial announcements. This is Ted Collins inviting you to join us again tomorrow when Kate Smith Speaks. The Homemaker's Quiz. Question. What is a practical, everyday way for me to help guard the health of my family? Answer. One way is to see that your family gets the sleep they need. If you know that the caffeine in coffee disturbs someone, serve Sanka coffee, which is 97% caffeine-free. Sanka's real coffee. Delicious, satisfying coffee. It comes to you roaster fresh in a vacuum-sealed jar. So buy it today at your grocer's. Sanka Coffee. King George VI of England will speak at 3 p.m. Eastern Wartime and President Roosevelt at 10 p.m. Eastern Wartime tonight. Keep tuned to your Columbia station for the latest news. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
The following announcement is brought to you by the makers of Lipton Soup. Folks, in this, the crisis of the war, all of us want to back our boys in the attack. Here's one way of doing it. Support the Fifth War Loan and buy more bonds than before. Put across the Fifth War Loan. When you buy bonds, buy double. Renzo presents Big Sister. Yes, there's the clock in Glen Falls Town Hall, telling us it's time for Renzo's story of Big Sister. The warm sun is pouring through the open window of Ruth Wayne Big Sister's hotel room. It's 1.30 in the afternoon. John is lying on the bed reading, or at least pretending to read, and Ruth is at a small desk writing a letter, or at least she's trying to write a letter. Ruth? Mm Mm-hmm? You almost through? No, not quite, John. Want to read me what you've written so far? Mm -hmm. I've only written two sentences. (laughs) It's as bad as that. Well, it isn't very good. But I'll read you what I've written. Okay. Richard, darling, this morning when I got up, do you know the first thing that I thought of? I must write a letter to Richard. And do you know what else I thought of? I thought, well, it won't be long now, another year or two at the most, and Richard won't have to have Nettie reading my letters to him. He'll be able to read them for himself. Oh, go on. I'm afraid I've reached the end of the line. Oh. Not much to say after sitting at the desk 15 minutes, is it? Oh, dear, I never was good at letter writing. Oh. I always thought you were very good at it. Now, you know better. Ruth, darling, do you know something? What? We're getting into a bad habit. Are we? Mm Mm-hmm. A very bad habit. The habit of not saying what we mean. I don't follow you. Well, there's nothing wrong with your ability to write interesting and readable letters. But you can't write that letter to Richard because the kid wants to know when we're coming home. And that's the one question we can't answer. Huh? Isn't that so, Ruth? Well, yes, I suppose it would be a help if I could name a definite date. Help? make all the difference in the world. And since we're playing this truth and consequence game, let's let's follow through, shall we? Or at least let me follow through. What now, John? There's no reason in the world for the two of us to be staying at this hotel. Has that ever occurred to you? No. Hmm? Well, it should. It should have occurred to you a long time ago. John, I'm afraid I don't understand you. Ruth, the only sensible thing for you to do is to, to go home. But, John, I thought... Ruth, isn't it true that there's no practical purpose accomplished by your staying here? Isn't it true that now there's really no reason for you to stay away from Richard? I don't see that at all. You mean you... You do, but you don't want to admit it. Golly, I don't know how we got started on all this, but... Tell me something, will you? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you want me to go home? Frankly? Of course. No. Well, that's what I thought. That's no reason for you to stay around. But you're wrong, John. Oh, Ruth, darling, I, I shouldn't be so dependent on you. Now, that's nonsense. Well, I don't think it is. Ruth, you... You miss Richard and you miss Nettie. Now, wait a minute, dear. Well, I see no reason at no, all. No, no, now, wait. Let me speak my little piece. May well, I? Well, go right ahead. Now, this is going to be one of those in the first place and in the second place little speeches. And you'd better watch out or I may have a third or fourth point to add. Well, let's have the first point. First. Right. Now, I think it's ridiculous for you to talk about being dependent on me. I think it's silly for you to want to see this thing through alone. But, Ruth, I Now, now should... I still have the floor, John. I'm not through by a long shot. Darling, let's not mince words. 
this is a painful, trying ordeal you're facing. And it would be unfair and unthinking and unwifelike for me to walk out on you. But, Ruth, darling, I don't think so. Well, I do. And I'm sure if you thought about it a little while longer, you'd think so, too. Certainly I miss little Richard. So do you. Yes, I know. That's all very well, but... Now, listen. Neither of us is here because we want to be here. And neither of us should leave before this thing is settled. I know, but... You say you want me here. I want you to want me here. Well, of course I miss Richard. My goodness, I'd miss you a lot more if I went back to Glen Falls. Now, let's have no more discussion about it, shall we, Joe? All right, Ruth. We won't. But don't think I'm not grateful. That well, nevertheless... No, now, darling, if you start thanking me for staying here or any such nonsense, you're going to make me acutely uncomfortable. I'm sure you wouldn't want to do that. No, darling. I wouldn't want to make you acutely uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, I'd give a great deal if I could make you comfortable. Now, don't worry about me. Oh, but I am. But you shouldn't be. Ruth, one of these days, one of these days, I'm going to make up to you for all this. And I don't like that. Why not? Because it implies there's something you have to make up for. Hmm. There is. But there isn't. You couldn't have helped what happened any more than... Well, then I could. And it's perfectly ridiculous for you to feel a sense of guilt. Huh. Yeah. That's it. What's it? That sense of guilt. That, that corrosive sense of guilt. Oh, Ruth, when I think there was a, there was a time when... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'd better take it easy. Don't look so worried, Ruth. I'm not. Why do you smile? Well, not because I'm amused. But, Ruth, hearing you say you're not worried... You think I'm lying? No. I think you're being tactful. Well, that's the same thing, isn't it? Well, I'm not being tactful. I said I wasn't worried and I meant it. Of course, things aren't the way I'd like them to be. But I will tell you this. I was a lot more worried before we got here than I am now. Well, I can't think of anything that's happened since we got here that should be reassuring. There's only one trouble with you, Ruth. <laughs> only one? Mm-hmm. Only one. And it isn't a trouble, exactly. Well, come on, let's have it. What is it? You're not a good actor. You say you're not worried. But right at this very moment, you're plenty worried. And I'll tell you what you're worried about. Or, or don't I have to? Oh, you'd better tell me. Well, it's 1.35. I'm due at the Midwestern General Hospital at 2 o'clock. Should have been on my way to see Hollis Travers long before this. Why didn't you say something about it? I didn't think I had to, John. I knew you hadn't forgotten about your appointment. Oh, yes, but you could see me stalling. Well, I knew you weren't eager to keep the appointment. I also knew you would keep it. You are going to keep it, aren't you, John? Why don't you answer me? Oh, darling, I want to get home to see Richard, and so do you. But if we keep putting you're right. off... Yes, you're right. You're always right. Don't worry, I'll go see Hollis. In fact, I'll go there right now. John. Hello, Hollis. Come in. Thank you. Let me have your hat. I, I'm sorry I'm late. I I was worried you wouldn't come, but now that you're here, it doesn't matter. Where's Miss Stone? She'll be here later. Do you mind being alone with me? What? Oh, why should I? You shouldn't, but I thought you looked panicky for a minute when I... John... Look at me. Well, what's the matter? You haven't once looked at me since you came in. Why do you do that, John? Hollis. After uh, all, if we're to reach an understanding, if we too... Hollis, don't, don't do that. Don't do what? 
I'm here for a definite purpose. We came here to... Yes, John. Why did we come here? Well, uh, to talk about... Well, there are things that happened to us. All right, John. Let's talk about it. But this time, let me talk about myself. I've been talking about you all this time. Now let me tell you about myself. Hollis, I... Let me tell you how it feels, John, to have you so close and yet to know you're so far away. Especially after those days down on that island in the South Pacific. Those horrible and at the same time wonderful days when we were as close together as two people ever could be. Hollis, I'm afraid What that... is it, John? Well, this is a mistake. Why, John? Why is it a mistake? Does it make you uncomfortable when I talk this way? I think it makes it both uncomfortable. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make me uncomfortable. And it shouldn't do that for you. Hollis, we've a job to do. Of course we have. Well, let's get to it. I will, John. I will in just a minute. John, is there any doubt in your mind that I want to see you get well? Hollis, I, I don't think... Nobody wants to see you get well any more than I do. I've more at stake than anyone else. John... Take me in your arms. What? Are you out of your mind? Sometimes I wonder. Put your arms around me, John. Maybe that'll help. Maybe that'll make you remember. Put your arms around me, John, please. Stop it, Hollis. Everything else has failed. Maybe this will help you remember what happened down on that island. And what we once meant to each other. I'm sorry I didn't mean to sound bitter. But I can't help it, John. I love you. Hollis, stop it. Stop it, I tell you. Do you think I can? John, darling, listen to me. Now, look, Hollis. John, ever since I've been separated from you, I, I've had a sense of incompleteness. John, look at me. I've heard other men say that I'm beautiful. I must have seemed beautiful to you at one time. Put your arms around me, John. Kiss me. Shall we go on with what we came for, Hollis? This nonsense has gone far enough. Nonsense? Do you really think it's nonsense, John? Well, now, what do you think it is? I know what it is, John, but you don't. You're running away from something. John, listen, listen carefully, my dear. You want to know why you're here. You want to know the real reason. It's because you want to recapture the happiness you had when you knew your own mind and were in love with me. Stop it, Hollis. Why do you want me to stop it? This is ridiculous. No, John, it isn't. John, don't be afraid to face the truth. Don't be afraid to look back. That's why you're having all this trouble, because you're afraid. I'm not afraid of anything. Then why did you ask for Miss Stone the minute you came in? Well, all right, because... The I... other day, when I suggested that you leave Ruth home alone, why did you agree? I'll tell you why. Because without your being aware of it, you wanted something like this to happen. You wanted to be alone with me. Isn't that true, John? And now there's a long pause, and there's no sound in the room except the sound of the clock on the mantelpiece of Miss Stone's apartment, the clock that ticked eagerly as if it hurried forever forward like a child towards some imagined joy. Well, it's come at last, the news we've all been waiting for, D-Day and the Allied invasion of Hitler's Fortress Europe. And so to our prayers for a speedy victory, let's add our mightiest efforts to help win this war. If you are an unemployed woman, single, or a non-farm housewife with no small children, there's a place and a need for you in war work. If we're to meet our war production goals, and we must meet them if we are to win the war, hundreds of thousands of women must get into war work this year. If you've been thinking about entering war work, remember, most war jobs are no heavier than ordinary household tasks. And remember, too, you'll be doing an important job for our country. Go to your local United States employment office and find where you are needed most. Do it now, today. We'll meet you again at Big Sisters tomorrow. This is Jim Amici speaking for Soapy Rich Rinso. 
The town of Glen Falls and the names of all characters used on the broadcast are fictitious. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And now, the romance of Helen Trent. Once again, the makers of Benefax Multivitamins present The Romance of Helen Trent, the story of a woman who found that when life seemed finished, over, she could still recapture romance at 35 and even beyond. Gil Whitney, to whom Helen is engaged, and who must spend several months in a wheelchair until he can walk again, is convalescing at his home outside of Hollywood with Bugsy O'Toole as his nurse and general handyman, and his younger sister Marjorie as his house guest from Indiana. Every afternoon at five, when Helen finishes her work as chief gown designer at Parafilm Studios, she hurries out to Gil's to have dinner and spend some time with him. And tonight should be an especially nice, peaceful evening for them, because Marjorie has flown back to Indiana to spend the weekend with her children. But the evening, starting off now, is not going to be peaceful at all. For today, Helen's long-accumulated disappointment reached a peak in her. A disappointment that Gil keeps insisting they delay their wedding till he's well again. Helen, in an outburst of angry tears, said to Agatha Anthony, with whom she lives... I'm going to talk to Gil Whitney tonight, like I've never talked to him before. I'm going to ask him one more time... Just this once, this last time to marry me and let us possess our happiness. I'll use every trick in the book to coax him and, and force him out of his foolish attitude. I'll cry and wheedle and, and, if necessary, stand on my head. But I guarantee you this time I'll get results. And I should have taken this stand long before now, too. By the time Helen got out to Gill's, she was calm again, very self-possessed and quiet. But she's waited her chance to speak, and now it's come. With dinner over, the two are sitting together in the lamplit living room. Gill has put his wheelchair next to the phonograph and is playing for Helen an old record of April in Paris, which was one of her favorite tunes several years ago. And Helen has just been telling him of the wedding this afternoon of one of her co-workers at the studio, Betty Fairfax. You know, three months have gone by since you got out of the hospital, Gill, and we've done nothing about it. But in that same length of time, Betty Fairfax has met and married the man she loves. You see, not not all people are spendthrifts of time like we are. Helen, please, sweetheart, don't begin on that again. I'm I... not beginning now. I'm finishing, Gil. And you're going to listen. You're lucky I blew off all my steam and temper on Agatha tonight, so now I can be a little calmer with you. Look, Gil, this is June, and already we've thrown three months away. I'm... So I'm now announcing to you one fact. And I mean every word of it. Gil, you're going to marry me this month or never. Do you understand that? Now, in June, or not at all. Sweetheart. Why this sudden outburst, darling? Because all of a sudden I'm... I'm sick to death of living for a future that never comes and chucking the present into the wastebasket. Why, why, you and I might as well be in the first stages of a courtship as the way we are now. I'm away from you all day long, and I rush out here at night. And can we have a meal alone together? Can we even find a place to sit and talk alone together? No, Bugsy's around and Marjorie's around, and people are coming and going, and I... I can hardly be close to you. So I'm starving a little. And I'm getting more and more angry and fed up and tired and disgusted with the whole thing. Helen, do you think I don't feel the same way, too? And furthermore, I'm... I'm getting terribly embarrassed at my doing all the urging about this. Do you think it flatters a woman any to propose to her fiancé at least once a day, every day in the week? I'm stopping it right now, Gil. This is my final time, and, and you can say yes or no. I think you're mean. Oh, Helen, please. Now, wait a second, my darling. Why can't I be taking care of you? I'm the logical one to do it, aren't I? I could quit my work and look after you, and, and life would be a beautiful thing. It's only for a while you'll be this way. And you won't even give me the privilege of helping you when you need me most. We could have all the long, lovely days together. It'd be something 
something sweet we'd remember all our lives. And instead, you're, you're keeping me on the outside where I can hardly look in. I can't even plan a meal for you or get you your medicine or, or even arrange the flowers here in your house. Marjorie and Bugsy beat me to it, and I... I just come out and visit in the evening. And it's empty and lonesome. And I hate it. I hate it. I'm sorry you resent so much Marjorie staying here, Helen. But after all, she is my sister. She's newly widowed. She has no money. Would you want me to completely turn her away? I don't resent Marjorie. I, I just think you could make some other arrangement about her. You know she gets on your nerves and constantly tears down all the convalescing you do. Nonsense. That's dear. the truth. You know it. Your own doctor said so. Now you're going to let her children come out for the summer, which will give you no peace and quiet at all, and, and you'll be longer than ever getting well so we can be married. Oh, you see, Gil, you see my point. The time has come when if we're ever going to be married, we've got to do it despite hindrances. There'll always be hindrances. The time will never arrive when everything's just perfect. Oh, I'm fed up, I tell you. I'm completely fed up. And turn off that record. I've had enough of memories in the old days. We're in the present now, and we're going to stay in it. Very well, darling. Now, Helen, let's... Let's take one thing at a time. May I say a word now? First of all, about Marjorie. I hate to say so, but I'd prefer to be rid of her, too. She means well, but she's too difficult to live peaceably with. I told her I could give her a reasonable allowance to live on at home, but she's not satisfied with that. She wants to stay here in California. For the time being, I feel compelled to give in to her. I'm all she has in the world, and I, I cannot and I will not shirk my duty to my only sister and her youngsters. I couldn't look myself in the face if I didn't do what I could for sis. Well, let her stay here in California, Gil. She and the children could have my apartment in town if I were married to you and living out here. Said we'd keep my place in town anyway for the sake of convenience. Sweetheart, Marjorie's not what's keeping us from being married. The fact that I'm stuck here in this wheelchair is as clod-like as a tree stump. Not earning a cent of money. Heaven only knows how long it'll be before I can get back to my law practice. Money needn't enter into it at all, Gil. You can say that, darling, but maybe I feel differently about it. That's the first time you've ever mentioned finances. So now we have a new hindrance to add to all the others. Money. If you'd try hard, maybe you could add the weather, too. Helen, it isn't kind of you to talk that way. Look, dear, you've never seemed to be able to see this at all. Try to understand that a man who has to be lifted around like a baby doesn't feel like a man. He doesn't want to marry the woman of his dreams when he's as helpless as... when he's utterly helpless. The very thought of that makes him wince. Try to think a little of how I feel, Helen. Oh, darling, to me, you're not helpless. And I love you more now than I ever have in my life. It'll be for such a short time, Gil. Only a few months that you'll be this way. Why can't we take it in our stride and, and go on and live? I want the first few months of our life together to be beautiful the way I've dreamed of their being, Helen. You can't have everything in life turn out the way you've dreamed it. That's my whole point. There are a few times you have to compromise or... or lose out. And this is one of them. I mean it, Gil. It's now, this month, or not at all. You mean you'd break your engagement to me? I don't need to go into details. I simply mean what I said. Now you're certainly giving me something to worry about. I'm sorry, but that's the stand I have to take. Helen, has it occurred to you that something might go wrong with my convalescence and I'd never walk again? Darling, will you stop looking for bugaboos? You know such a thing would never happen. Such a thing might very likely happen. I don't expect it to, but it certainly could. I'd feel badly enough if you were married to a temporary invalid, but if you were married to a permanent one... Gil, will you get this through your head? Nothing you do can wrong me. I'm asking to marry an invalid. I'm eager and anxious and yearning to. I want you just the way you are, or, or any way you're ever going to be. Because I love you more than all the rest of the world put together. Gil, you've got one bad fault. And I'm going to tell you what it is, darling. You're a perfectionist. You want everything to be perfect and ready before you make a move. That's an admirable quality in one way, and in another it's utterly destructive. Because every plan in life is too uncertain. But, Helen, I'm I... ready to reach out and take what belongs to us and deal with the hindrances afterward. If you aren't ready, say so. You'll let the whole thing drop once and for all. 
Are you saying you'll stop loving me? I'm asking you the questions now. Can we be married right away, Gil? Or can't we? How long do I have to decide on the answer? No time. Not any. I want the answer right now. interrupt this program. We have interrupted this program to bring you another special invasion broadcast. We take you to London for the report of Edward R. Murrow. Go ahead, London. Here is a summary of the latest news available at Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. There is no cause for pessimism. The beach opposition was less than had been expected. Our convoys did not come under serious attack. The mine sweeping was good. It was a low-tide landing, and the minesweepers did the most difficult job ever done by the little ships. They established the clear water, and they led the big ships in. There was no changing of course. They had to contend with a two-knot change in the tide right in the middle of the operation. That meant they were sweeping in a strong cross-tide. The weather has not been kind during the first phase of the operation. It was bad when the attack began, but the weathermen said it would improve. And they were right. Many of the men must have had an uncomfortable passage. The air cover had to go in low. But tonight it seems that the weathermen were right. The opinion here seems to be that we are over the first two or three hurdles, but there are many more to come. The American naval forces were able to silence the shore batteries at the points of landing. And our losses at sea have been very, very small. In the air, it is clear that the Luftwaffe has not given serious battle. Up to noon today, only about 50 enemy fighters have been seen. It is clear that the Germans haven't yet committed their air force, haven't yet made up their minds. It appears that the Allied air has done its job. Between midnight last night and the early hours of this morning, more than 31,000 airmen were over the target area, and that doesn't count the airborne troops. More than 1,000 heavy bombers were out last night. Then, more than a thousand of our heavies went out at first light. After them went the mediums and the dive bombers. The lack of enemy response in the air is pleasing, but it is no cause for undue optimism. They still have a formidable fighter force. Their morale is still good. They just haven't made up their minds. They're waiting. Goering has issued an order of the day, telling the Luftwaffe it must beat off this attack at all costs, even if the Luftwaffe is destroyed but he has not yet thrown in his main force. The RAF's 2nd Tactical Air Force alone flew more than 2,000 sorties today, providing a fighter umbrella over the invasion beaches. Not a single enemy aircraft had been seen in the bridgehead area up to early afternoon. Returning pilots, who could see the ground operations, described the landing of troops and equipment as going like clockwork. One Spitfire pilot said, I went through Dunkirk. And I am not ashamed to say that I cried with joy at the sights I saw today. One French flyer remarked, We all felt as if we were on our way home at last. And it felt good. Prime Minister Churchill has just given the House of Commons a rather full report on the fighting so far. Here's what he reported. The landing of troops on the broad front has been effective. And troops have penetrated several miles inland. Lodgements exist on a broad front. Losses are far less than we apprehended. Many dangers and difficulties which appeared at this time last night as extremely formidable are behind us. This operation is proceeding in a thoroughly satisfactory manner. Airborne troops are well established, and the follow-up are all and the follow-up is proceeding with very much less loss than we expected. Mr. Churchill named a locale of fighting for the first time. He said there is even fighting proceeding in the town of Khan. And he indicated that the fighting was not heavy because in referring to the situation at Khan, he said, the enemy now will probably try to concentrate in this area. In that event, heavy fighting will soon begin and will continue. Mr. Churchill said, there is fighting proceeding at various points. 
We have captured various bridges which are of importance and which were not blown up. Mr. Turkle began his second report of the day to the Commons by saying he had been at centers where the latest information is received. After speaking of unexpectedly low losses, he said the resistance of the batteries has been greatly weakened by the bombing of the air forces and the superior bombardment of our ships quickly reduced their power to dimensions which did not affect the problem. He called the landing of airborne troops a marvelous feat and said they were larger than anything there has been so far in the world. He said risks had to be taken in respect of the weather, but he declared that General Eisenhower's courage is equal to all the necessary decisions. He ended by saying, it is the most serious time that we are entering upon, and we enter upon it with our great allies, all in good heart and in good friendship. And the Commons cheered the Prime Minister's optimistic report. And now, with the immediate worry off our minds about just the getting of a foothold in Europe, it's not too soon to turn some attention to the political problems that liberation, particularly of France, is going to involve. One aspect of the political struggle for power in France was illuminated sharply this afternoon. Early in the afternoon, Marshal Pétain issued a proclamation to the French people, urging them to do just exactly what the Germans want, namely, stay put and carry on with their normal job. Pétain's excuse is that any other course means reprisals and bloodshed. And just a few minutes ago, General de Gaulle, who is now in England, issued an appeal to France of an entirely different kind, an appeal to all Frenchmen to fight the Germans, fight them wherever and whenever they can strike and with every possible means. General de Gaulle said that the battle for France was in full swing and that Frenchmen must participate in defeating the already retreating enemy. He told them to sabotage and destroy the German defenses, evade German conscription, and mobilize their assistance to the Allied armies. He called upon Frenchmen to obey the orders of the French government, by which he met the Committee of National Liberation in Algiers, and also to obey the orders of the properly delegated French officers. All the hypothetical situations, assumptions, and conflicts about France of the past few years will now soon be proven or disproven in the light of hard results inside France itself. Another report out of Germany casts some light on what may be our strategy in this new attack. This report says that the landings are designed to secure the port of Cherbourg for the landing of heavy equipment and goes on to say that Allied parachute troops have been dropped at both sides of the base of the peninsula to pinch it off. If this succeeds, the peninsula will fall to us by strangulation, with no way for German reinforcements to rush to the defense of that vital harbor. Whether or not this is so, Richard Hottelet noticed this morning when he was flying over that area that the coast of Normandy is a dead plain, with not a truck or a motorcycle moving over this road. Meanwhile, there have been more reports, which we cannot yet confirm, to the effect that we have landed on the Channel Islands of Jersey and Guernsey. There will be a communique out later on this evening, and we will see how much of this the Supreme High Command confirms. We return you now to Columbia in New York. You have just heard Edward R. Murrow, Columbia's Chief of European News. Here in CBS World News Headquarters in New York is Doug Edwards. CBS now continues its reporting of the news of the Allied invasion of Europe. You may be interested to know that since 3.32 this morning, Eastern War Time, and in the more than nine hours since then, we've devoted approximately seven hours to invasion news and analysis. This has included the words of fighting men themselves, reports from eyewitness radio reporters, bulletins from the press associations, communiques from Supreme Allied Headquarters, and urgent messages of government leaders speaking to their people and to all the world. Those of you who have been listening are aware of the urgent pattern we're following, which is to recapture the time of any regular program on our schedule whenever fresh news comes in from the scene of action on this great day of liberation. We have necessarily repeated much of the news in summary form, but have brought you familiar programs in their regular places whenever even repetition has run its course. Fresh news will, of course, be broadcast at any moment within seconds of its receipt and without warning. Stay tuned to your CBS station for constant coverage of the latest news from every theater of the war. Prime Minister Churchill said in London tonight that Allied troops have penetrated in some cases several miles inland after effective landings on the French coast on a broad front. 
That's a bulletin, and another one just in. From the United Press, quotes the German D&B News Agency is saying this evening that the invasion front has further widened. And Reichsmarshal Hermann Goering declared in an order of the day to the German Air Forces today that the invasion of Western Europe must be fought off even if it means the death of the Luftwaffe. That is another bulletin just received in CBS World News Headquarters from an enemy source, Reichsmarshal Hermann Goering. Thousands of Allied bombing planes softened up the defenses of Western Europe for the Anglo-American invasion armies last night and early today, dropping more than 11,200 tons of high explosives down on the Nazi coastal fortifications in eight and one-half hours of furious attack. The roar of the bursting bombs and the motors of attacking fighter planes rolled back across the narrow straits of Dover incessantly from midnight until 8 a.m. Some 7,500 Allied planes hammered at the network of enemy gun emplacements studying the Channel coast. By mid-morning, the Allied air fleets had swept the skies clear of Nazi planes and fighters were racing as far as 75 miles inland without drawing a challenge from the battered Luftwaffe. That brings to mind that bulletin which came in a moment ago from Hermann Goering, who declared in an order of the day to the German air forces that the invasion of Western Europe must be fought off even if it means the death of his vaunted Luftwaffe. Allied invasion forces so far have met less resistance than expected, both in the approaches of the beachheads and in the air. That is from the United Press. Although detailed reports of the situation are lacking still, it's summed up by one observer with the words, we have gotten over the first five or six hurdles. And in a broadcast to his homeland, General Charles de Gaulle today called on French patriots to extend all possible aid to the Allied armies and, above all, to do everything not to be taken prisoner by the Germans. His talk, heard over CBS, brought home to the French the fact that their forces never before have had such a glorious opportunity to distinguish themselves. And from London, General Wilhelm Hanstein, the commander-in-chief of the Norwegian underground, broadcast an order to all organized fighting groups inside Norway to be prepared to take part in the great settlement, as he put it. Hanstein told his countrymen that they would receive orders on what to do. You must not act openly except in conjunction with the Allied military plan, he said, and not before orders have been issued from London. Prime Minister Churchill conferred with King George at a Buckingham Palace luncheon today, and then both visited General Dwight Eisenhower at his headquarters. The King and Churchill also met with other Allied invasion commanders, and they received late reports coming in from the beachheads in northern France. President Roosevelt spent the early tense morning hours of the invasion writing a prayer which he will read to the nation over all radio networks tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern wartime. CBS, of course, will carry his broadcast. After his fireside chat last night, the president went to his bedroom on the second floor of the White House. Between telephone calls from the War Department telling of the progress of the action, the president wrote a prayer which he wants the country to join in tonight. The prayer has been released for publication and so that the country might know it and will be able to join with Mr. Roosevelt tonight in praying for victory and for safety for the American forces in this greatest of all military undertakings. Now, another summary of the invasion news to this point. Allied forces landed in the Normandy area of northwest France this morning and have thrust several miles inland against unexpectedly slight German opposition and with losses much smaller than had been anticipated. The grand assault, scheduled for yesterday but postponed until today because of bad weather, found the highly vaunted German defenses much less formidable in every department than had been feared. Airborne troops who led the assault before daylight on a history-making scale suffered extremely small losses in the air. That's what headquarters tells us. Even though the great plane fleets extended across 200 miles of sky and used navigation lights to keep formation. Naval losses for the seaborne forces are described at headquarters as very, very small, although 4,000 ships and several thousand smaller craft participated in taking the American, Canadian, and British troops to France. Coastal batteries were virtually silenced by the guns of the British, American, and Allied fleets, including battleships, and the beachheads were speedily consolidated. The German radio said the scene of the landings was a 100-mile stretch of coast from Cherbourg to Le Havre around the Bay of the Seine and the northeast shore of the Normandy Peninsula. 
Prime Minister Churchill, in announcing the successful invasion of the House of Commons at noon, six hours after the first seaborne troops landed, said the landings were the first of a series. Churchill disclosed that 11,000 Allied planes were available as needed for the battle, the Allied bombers climaxing 96 hours of steady pounding, lashed German coastal defenses this morning with 10,000 tons of explosives. Fighters who went out to guard the beaches had little to do, however, as the German air forces up until noon had flown only 50 sorties against the invading forces. And as we told you a moment ago, the Prime Minister issued another uh, communique uh, from his headquarters this afternoon to say that things were indeed going uh, at least as well and in some cases better than expected. The Germans were known to have probably uh, 1,750 fighters and 500 bombers to meet the attack today, but they did not use them in the start, and why they didn't was not apparent. But Allied airmen warned that a violent reaction may be expected soon, noting that Hermann Goering, in that order of the day, has told his air forces the invasion must be beaten off even if the Luftwaffe perishes. And the Nazi-operated Paris radio, quoting a last-minute flash from the battlefield, this is a German report, said tonight that a vicious battle is raging north of Rouen between powerful Allied paratroop formations and German anti-invasion forces. These paratroops had landed behind the Atlantic Wall defenses. The Nazi-operated Paris radio, quoting a last-minute flash from the battlefield, as the Germans put it, say that a vicious battle is raging north of Rouen between powerful Allied paratroop formations and German anti-invasion forces. 600 naval guns opening fire on the French coastal stretch west of Le Havre laid down a mighty barrage of 2,000 tons of shells each 10 minutes, beginning at 5.15 a.m. today, British time, as the Allied invasion of Europe began. Apparently taken by surprise, the Germans replied from under a smoke screen laid down by our aircraft to hide us. The red glare of flames enveloped targets. This comes from Pierre Huss, who was representing the combined American press. Covered by the tornadic uh, bombardment, British assault troops successfully stormed ashore at 7.30 a.m. and were clearing the beaches by 7.45. Beginning at 7 a.m., one of the most sustained bombardments struck. It must have stunned the Germans and apparently silenced the majority of the shore batteries. The Luftwaffe was absent. The Allied Air Forces appear to have complete sky mastery. During the night, minesweepers cleared wide passages for the fleet, and then destroyers daringly escorted landing craft to shore while overhead, airborne paratroops passed intermittently. And now here in our New York studio, to give you an analysis of the situation as it appears to him at the moment, is Columbia's analyst, Quincy Howe. The news of these allied landings on the north coast of France has given the war its most drastic and sudden change since the Germans invaded Russia. Up to less than 12 hours ago, the Russians, and the Russians alone, had engaged and defeated millions of German troops in vast land battles. Our North African and Italian campaigns had diverted some German strength from Russia, so had our preparation for invasion from the West. The fall of Mussolini in July and the fall of Rome day before yesterday kept German prestige hard throughout Europe. But until Anglo-American troops began to land in force in the West, it was toward the Russians that the Germans looked with fear, and it was toward the Russians that the people of the occupied countries looked with hope. Our landings have started to change all that, and the better and faster our campaign in the West develops, the more rapidly British and American prestige will grow in Western Europe. These landings differ from the invasion of Italy in at least two important respects. First, they show that Britain and the United States have developed first-rate military power on land, as well as in the air and on the sea. We're now able to come to grips with the Germans in their own element, that's land fighting, having already mastered our two elements, the air and the sea. The campaign in Italy amounted to little more than a dress rehearsal compared with the scale of the present attack. Then in the second place, these landings in France represent our first attempt at real liberation as compared with invasion. Although the Italian people had little liking for Mussolini and nothing but hatred for the Germans, the French people went into the war against the Germans and have lived under German domination for the past four years. Just as the landings in Europe will demonstrate the military power and skill of Britain and America, so these same landings will demonstrate the popular following and the fighting power that the underground resistance movement has developed in France and perhaps in other countries of Western Europe, too 
for these other countries have also received notification that the liberation has begun. At the moment, though, General de Gaulle has become the key figure in the whole European resistance movement. That's because the first landings have occurred in France, and because General de Gaulle has no rival as a leader of French resistance. But it may be some time before we know how strong the French resistance movement proves, and how much General de Gaulle himself can deliver. Raymond Daniel cabled a dispatch from London, 